me tell you something that I've learned over the last 29 years of interviewing women from every walk of life. There is no shortage of these stories. And I think you're really going to enjoy the one we're about to hear. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. In the spotlight, a woman who has always known what she wanted to do with her life. As a child, she embraced dancing, and that led to acting, and that led to producing and directing and consulting and teaching on the college level, executive coaching and speech coaching, and then to establishing her own studio. The key here is that everything she has done has been rooted in her love for performing arts. I've known today's guest for maybe a little bit over 10 years, and I admire her so much. She is intuitive. She is smart. She is bold. And she is the kind of person who brings out the best in everyone she knows. Everyone she coaches, actors and actresses and voiceover talent, you name it, they are all better for knowing and working with this award-winning pro. Her name is Law Lapidus, and this is her story. As we settled into the conversation, I asked Law, which, by the way, is short for Lori, to talk about Law Lapidus Company and what inspired her to create it in the first place. I really wanted to have a company. I wanted to have a group that I could work with and bounce ideas off of and have energy with, you know, and like create. I think creation is such a primitive and important feeling, but I would say tool as well to build the dreams and the goals that we have. So igniting the creative mind and the creative brain was something I was always very interested in doing myself and helping others get to their most creative place that they could. I was an actor and director, and then I became a college professor at some of the most incredible universities on the East Coast. And then I was very fortunate to fall into a position as an executive speech coach. And that was really interesting for me because I was straddling the worlds of artistic, which I was in for many years, and then academic, which I was in now for about 10, 11 years, and now corporate and executive. And what I discovered was that, you know, we were all speaking the same language in a way. We wanted the same things. We just had different audiences, and we had different ways of getting to those things. And so I became fascinated by how could I, as a coach, as a practitioner, and as a studio owner, help clients and colleagues get to that place that they want to get to in their communication, in their performance? My mentor that I love so much, and I said to him, I said, Dennis, I, I don't know if I have much to give to a corporate client. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an actor. I, I came out with an MFA degree. And I'll never forget he said this to me. He said, you have it all within you, Law. You need to stop talking and listen. And if you listen and really learn how to listen, your client, your audience is going to tell you exactly what they need. And then you're going to give it to them. Open the doors. Tell people what they can experience within your company. Sure. Well, now I'm thrilled to say much of what we do is online. Our whole industry is global. So we're working with folks all over the world, which is very, very exciting. 
So if they come to us, they're typically coming in under two umbrellas. The first umbrella is our studio, and that's typically talent who come in. They're actors, they're voiceover talent. Sometimes we get models and singers, and they'll come in and they'll say, either I'm at the beginning of my career and I need to learn what I need to do to work, or I've been working and my growth has stopped or I need to rebrand myself. I feel stuck now because I want to shift direction and pivot. How do I do that? So we focus in craft and process, teaching, you know, actor skills and everything from dealing with ad copy to copy interpretation to editing, improvisation, all the great tools that actors really need to know as they're gearing up to work. And we also have a production studio as well. So We do industry standard voiceover demos, which a lot of our clients want to have when they come in, or actor reels. They want to have video clips that shows casting directors the kind of work that they can do. And we do that. We're actually doing that even now during the COVID period. We're partnered with a studio that is able to safely work with folks in creating demos. And then we provide interesting events for folks. I think this is a big part of our brand now, and that is showcasing. So we partner with top New York, LA, Miami, UK agencies, casting directors, filmmakers, you name it, we partner with them. And now our showcases are all online, so we do everything virtually. And our folks come in and they audition. They actually get a chance to audition show their stuff, you know, strut their stuff, and then get educational feedback. So they get the feedback, the direction, the adjustments they're really looking for, for their professional development. I know, having been to your studio, that that personal touch is what you and your team are really well known for. But as an entrepreneur during COVID, like anyone else who's managed to be successful at this time, you had to pivot and make everything virtual. How hard was that for you? That's a great question. And I, honestly, I, I was prepared to say that was awful. It was so hard. But I got to tell you, it was fantastic. It was fabulous. It was like moving in a direction that our company needed to move in anyway, because our industry is very much online, even before COVID hit. But I love the accessibility to working with people all over the world. And I'm sure a lot of folks in businesses would chime in the same thing in their industry. But for our industry, I think it's important to not only teach what we do, but demo what we do. So that, you know, if we're saying you're gonna audition online, have the event that auditions you online. You know, if we're saying you gotta send in a self-tape as an actor, have the service to help you self-tape as an actor so that you're really role modeling the kind of work that you want people to be doing in the industry and helping them through that because there's a huge tech divide, I think, generationally as well. For us folks who are sometimes 40 and up, we're a little nervous with technology. You know, we're not digital natives. And yet we're helping to empower Uh, folks to get into the technology scene and feel comfortable building their home studios. I've always marveled at how you can watch or listen to someone, size up what you just heard or saw, and without hurting that person too much. Because again, when you're a performer, you're laying yourself out there. Mm. You're able to help and not hurt. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? 
I'm not a big believer of the tear you down to build you up kind of thing. It's just never the way I worked well as a performer. And I don't feel like it brings out the best in people oftentimes. I feel like it's intimidating. It's far from a safe space. And folks feel always sort of under the gun that they're they're wanting to please you. They want you to like them or approve of them rather than coming from a place of authenticity, a place of, of inner credibility. I call it bringing the real, you know, bring the real, bring the real. The real is you and your history. What you bring to the table is important. And I don't care if you're 10 years old or 40 or 80, your spirit and your history and your personality, and yes, your spirituality is all important in the building of your craft. And so to me, it's always layering the cake rather than ripping it down and starting to bake it again. You know, and I always call it frosting of the cake. It's like, how many layers can we frost this cake with? What was it like for you when you were growing up? And where did you grow up? I grew up on the south shore of Boston in a small town called Randolph, Mass. And I still remember it very dearly. I loved my growing up years with a wonderful family. I was very lucky, and I realize that now, that I was incredibly supported by a family that was not in the biz. They were not in the industry. They didn't know much about it. All they knew is they had a dramatic daughter (laughs) who, like you, always knew what she wanted to do. I, I never really strayed away from performance. I was a dancer for many years before I found acting. And then once I found acting and then I could talk, um, that was immensely exciting to me. I was always mature too. I think I had an old soul. So I always knew that something about performance was deeply satisfying to me, but also somehow to the audience as well. I couldn't process why that was or what that was. And I I figured that out later. Was there ever a turning point for you as a young girl when you performed, whether it was your dancing or whether you were on a stage in a small play where you heard the applause or you saw the faces of the people and you said, this really rings my bells. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that happened at a very, very young age. I mean, as a, a dancer, as a kid, I always knew that I was a dancer at heart in my spirit. I'm not so sure I was a great dancer. I think I was a good dancer. I wasn't a technical dancer. I was an emotional dancer. And that was kind of interesting. And then I became analytical and heady into my teen years. And that's where acting came in. And I started to discover, wow, okay, not only could I talk with my movement, but I also could craft ideas and analyze script and interpret things in a way that was unique to me. I think at that, at that young age, I was already thinking 10 years ahead, like where I wanted to be 10 or 15 years ahead. That was always something that was a part of my persona. So by the time I hit my college years, I knew I wanted to do theater. I wanted to be a performer. It was like, in my mind, it was a done deal. Talk to us a little bit about your college experience. I wanted to go to this, you know, a conservatory, you know, big BFA program. I wanted to go to New York. You know, luckily I had down to earth parents who kept my feet on the ground and said, you can do whatever you want to do, but we're going to suggest, and actually I didn't even want to go to college is the truth. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to work. I was always a worker. I wanted to get out and perform and work. And they said, 
just do us a favor, go to college and get an education. Because even if you become an actor, be an educated actor. Okay. You never know what you're going to want to do in the future. And when I went to college, I started out at Salem State and then I transferred to Bridgewater State and had some really, really fine and amazing experiences. There was one moment where a professor who I later met years ago and actually directed her in a show, which was pretty incredible. She sat me down in in my undergrad and she said, I know you're having trouble getting through this and and finishing your degree. You better do it because you're going to go to grad school. And I thought she was crazy. I thought she was off a rocker. I must have been 20 or 21 at the time. I said, what? Are you serious? I can barely get through my undergraduate. She said, no, you need to do it because I see what your future is going to hold. And sure enough, whatever it was, six years later, I was off to graduate school And it took me a couple years to get into the school of my choice. And then I was luckily accepted on a full tuition scholarship and TA ship to University of California at Irvine and accepted like full ride. And they said, you want to come here? You want to move 3000 miles away? Come on, we're going to take you into this MFA program. Take me back to that moment. You get the letter or the phone call. Boom. Oh, wow. I'll never forget the moment because it was, and where I was, and I was standing in a kitchen, and it was, yes, it was, it was like the turn of a chapter, like you could feel it happening as it was happening. By the time I got accepted, I was 29 years old, and the chair of the department called me on the phone. He said, can you move your life 3,000 miles away? for the next three years for a full-time residency. Can you do that? And I was smart enough to know that was a yes or no answer. That wasn't an explanation. That was a yes or no answer. And I remember what I said to him, Candy. I said, yes, I can. And he said, okay, so we're going to give you the scholarship and you're going to pack your bags and come on over. And that was the start of a whole chapter. I am looking at the list of roles that you have played and the productions that you have been a part of. It's really, truly remarkable. What do you love most about being on a stage, about being an actress? What is it that you love about it, La? Oh, wow. That's a great question. There's so much to love about that experience. I think for me, the bottom line of it is it was as close to me as I could get. Um, And it was, even though it was public experience, it was a very private experience. Because when you have an inner calling like that and you're satisfying that calling at the time, there's such an immense satisfaction and and circular uh, fruition to your soul that happens that is... You can't even articulate it. It just happens. And then, for me, it happened over and over and over again and led me to greater things and led me to more callings. (laughs) And I think back, oh, you know, it's like sliding doors. If this one thing didn't happen, what would the whole rest of your world have looked like if you didn't do that? Like, if I didn't accept that invitation to go to Irvine, what would have happened? I wouldn't have married my husband. I met him out there. I wouldn't have adopted my beautiful children. I wouldn't have taught in college, probably. I wouldn't have done probably anything that has been done in the way it's been done. You just mentioned your husband and your beautiful family. You said that you have two adoptive children. And I shared with you that I'm an adopted child. And I remember my father saying to me, when they put you in my arms, 
you belonged to me. What was it like for you when you adopted your children? Same thing? I was a slightly older parent. I was already in my late 30s when we adopted our first one, and I think it was about 40 when we adopted our second one. And it was a, a very complex and difficult and deeply moving pilgrimage for me because wow. we went to the country where my my grandparents came from originally, and that was Ukraine, which, of course, originally was USSR, Russia. Um, so my husband and I decided we were going to adopt one from Ukraine, and that's my son, Sage. So we went through this whole experience, this whole pilgrimage, and then decided not a year later to do it again and get a second child in Russia. It was an incredibly complicated experience to meet someone, a child, that is a total and utter stranger to you. And our children were older. My son was two and eight months. He was almost three, and my daughter was almost four. So they were considered older children in the orphanages that they were in. And it's deeply moving in so many ways. It's hard to even describe. And Whenever that bonding happened through the years, whenever that connection happened with us through the years, I can honestly say, and the rest of my family says the same thing, they absolutely 100% are completely ours. In fact, we have a Yiddish word in the Jewish tradition called beshert. Beshert means fate. That the idea is that you didn't select them and you didn't go to get them, they selected you. They look like us. They act like us. No one ever would ever believe that they were adopted and that they are completely and fully of our family. Are you a better actress now that you're a mom? I'm a better everything because I'm a mom. I fought the mom thing. I did. For many years, I kicked and screamed because I was a very sort of working person, independent I'm an actress. person. I have things to do. Oh, yeah. to be on. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're a little older, you're set in your ways and you're used to doing everything. You're working a lot. And you're used to, you know, doing everything according to you. So it was a shift, no doubt. It was a big transition. It was a big shift. And I didn't think I was good at that role for a long time. And ironically, I had played a mother for many years <laughs> leading up to it, but it had nothing to do with being a mother. So once I was a mother, I didn't know what that role really entailed. And I know a lot of moms, whether they're biological moms or not, feel that way. It's like, who's this stranger? I'm raising this person. What do I need to do? What does it all mean? You know what I'm saying? It took a while for me to shift into gear. It took quite a while. And then once that shift happened over the years, it was absolutely deeply irreversible. It was like they came from me. And now your children have grown. Your son is a member of our military. Thank you for your service. Your daughter is a budding actress. What does it feel like to see your daughter in that environment? It's amazing. It's it's completely full circle. It's like... Oh my gosh, I, we, I joke with my husband Jeremy all the time. It's like so many years of hardship that you go through as a parent, certainly as an adoptive parent as well, that all of a sudden you're getting these pats on your back, you know, like, whoa, great kids, or wow, they're amazing, or look at what they're doing, and you're like, thank you. <laughs> 
thank you. I feel like I feel like a lounge singer on a Thursday night at Holiday Inn. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> it's so rewarding. It's just, and it almost doesn't matter what they're actually achieving, what their jobs actually are, because we know that you, you win some, you lose some. But it's that process and progress that you're watching flower. And you're saying, oh, wow, I had something small to do with that. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? And can you pass that along to our listeners? One piece of advice is you're enough. And I never really felt that. I always felt I was running a race. I always felt like I was keeping score. I I had to do more. I had to do better. And my husband would always say, who's keeping score? You're enough. And that struck That was one thing that struck along with what I had said earlier, Dennis, my mentor, saying to me, stop talking and start listening. Because as soon as you listen, the world is going to inform you and tell you what you need to know. Who has been the biggest fan of your life? Oh, I've had a lot of fans, Candy. Honestly, I can't credit that to one person. I'd say my family, on the whole, has been a tremendous fan club, support system, and cheerleader for me. And my husband, of course, who is not in the industry at all. He's an accountant type guy, but he's extremely creative, has that creative brain and understanding how important that is, along with a village, a whole host of friends and colleagues and clients. But you know what's so funny? Now that you asked me that question, I think my children, who are now young adults, are really my biggest fans because I'm getting a little verklempt. <laughs> I'm tearing up a little bit. But it's it's like, you know, they're, they all of a sudden see you as a human being. And of course they see you as a mom. And of course they see you as a crazy, you know, whatever. But they all of a sudden have glimpses of you as a person in the world and what you do and what you've done and the deep appreciation of how that's connected to them. And I think that that forms a great fan, <laughs> a great cheerleader. Well, I can now say that I made Lala Pitas cry oh, in our yeah, conversation. You're right. right here. <laughs> when an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I think I'm very aggressive now. I never was when I was a kid. I, I, w- I overthought things a lot. I was very analytical. I was fear-based. I would hold off for a long time before doing anything. I have taught myself the technique of just doing, just getting up and doing, not sit in that static thought, but quickly move past it. Final question. I believe that we see our success in chapters. And certainly if I'd asked you this 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, your answer might be different. But right now, from where you see your life and how far you've come, how do you measure success? What does it look like and feel like to you? I I would imagine success is a very small measurement of time from moment to moment rather than one big thing that you're shooting for it's every day of your life that you're moving in a direction in a process with your people your cohorts and you're helping others to satisfy their goals and their needs and to me those are small nuggets of success that happen every single day 
Law Lapidus, my good friend and the founder of Law Lapidus Company. I'm so proud and happy to have had you here today. Thank you for sharing your story with us on the story behind her success. Thank you for having me. And that's the story behind her success for this week. If you want to know more about Law Lapidus, just go to lawlapiduscompany.com. And she spells her name L-A-U, new word, L-A-P-I-D-E-S. If you know a woman I should interview for this show, please reach out and tell me all about her. Candy at CandyOterry.com. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. That really does matter to me to know how you feel about this content. Whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise.